This evening's scripture reading is an ancient prophecy from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is the word of the Lord. The title of the sermon this morning, this evening, I don't speak a lot in the evenings. Um, The title of the sermon this evening is The Gift of God, and I'll just cut to the, the Chase, come right out and tell you what that is. The gift of God is Jesus. Jesus is the original Christmas gift. You know, the, the most distinctive custom around Christmas time is obviously the, the giving of gifts. Well, you maybe wonder where did that start? You know, where, where did that come from? It come, God started. It comes from Jesus. Jesus is the first Christmas gift that's given at the first Christmas. The passage that you just heard Esther read, which we're going to be looking at tonight, you know, Isaiah chapter 9, and verse 6, it says, famous verse, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Jesus didn't just come at Christmas, he was given. Or John 3.16, most famous verse in the whole Bible, same thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He uses the Christmas gift. And the question I want us to ask tonight is, what kind of gift is he? What can we say about him? How can we describe him? Two things, two qualities about Jesus as a gift. This is going to be the thesis statement of the sermon, if you're into thesis statements. Jesus, the Christmas gift of God, is a gift that is both disappointing and insulting. It's a Christmas gift that's disappointing and insulting. I don't know if you've ever gotten a disappointing gift, or if you've ever seen your kids open a gift they were disappointed with. But it always happens for the same reason, which is when you're expecting one thing, and you get something else instead. I remember a Christmas as a kid, uh, one of my uncles, actually, so this is we're talking about a grown man, and uh, all the presents under the tree had been opened. There was nothing left under the tree, but my aunt did that thing where she says, well, there's one more present. You know, it was too big to fit under the tree, so follow me. And so we all uh, parade out to the garage, following behind my uncle, who's in the front of the line. And he's thinking that it's a satellite dish. In fact, he knows that it's a satellite dish. He's sure that it's a satellite dish. He's planning to spend the rest of the day 
setting it up, and he's planning to, to spend the rest of the week enjoying these these new channels and this new programming. And so we, we get out there for the big reveal, and the garage door opens to see him met by a brand new barbecue grill, and yeah, he didn't even fake excitement. You know, his face falls. It was this really awkward, awkward moment. The point is, Jesus is like that. That's, Jesus is the barbecue grill. Jesus is this disappointing gift because he's not what we wanted and he's not what we expected. And not only is he disappointing, but the only thing worse than a disappointing gift is an insulting gift. Have you ever gotten an insulting gift? You know, somebody gives you a, a scale, for instance, or <laughs> nose hair trimmers, or a book on uh, how to be more likable, you know. The only thing worse than a disappointing gift is an insulting gift. And Jesus is both. He's both at the same time. So what I want to do tonight is to explain why that is. You know, you think, well, what do you mean? What do you mean he's a disappointing gift? What do you mean he's an insulting gift? By the time you leave tonight, I want you to know why that is. And the only way I know how to get that across is to tell you a story. So we're going to actually spend our whole time tonight just telling this one story it's an old story, an ancient story, one of the oldest stories we actually have as human beings. But it's a story that I think a lot of you probably haven't heard. And it's the, the story I'm referring to is the backstory to Christmas, the prequel to Christmas. You know, the, the latest Star Wars movie just came out. I'm not sure if you heard. They're kind of trying to keep it quiet. But um, it is out. And if you know anything about Star Wars, what you know is that uh, it's this long saga with multiple installments. And each installment derives a lot of its power and a lot of its significance from, from the way that it ties up the loose ends in the previous parts. So now we're in uh, episode 7. And this movie is it's about bringing to completion, bringing to fulfillment these things that have been set up earlier. But if, if you don't know what's gone before, then you miss it. You know, let's say you, you didn't watch the first six movies or you forgot the six, first six movies... You'll be sitting there in the theater, and you know something will happen on the screen, and this murmur goes through the crowd. You know, everybody's nudging each other. You're like, "What happened? I don't, I don't know what that was about." You know, everybody cheers, and you think, "Well, why was that significant?" You don't know what's going on because you don't know what's gone before. And the the thought occurred to me this week that most people listening to the Christmas story are like someone watching Star Wars Episode Seven that hasn't seen Episodes One through Six. You just don't get it. No offense, but you, you just... My guess is, for most of you, because you don't know the story that leads up to it, you just really don't understand what's happening in the Christmas story, what it means, or why it's significant. So I want to hopefully remedy that, at least to some extent, tonight. And by the end, I hope that once you hear the story, you'll know, for the first time, maybe, why the most disappointing and the most insulting Christmas gift that's ever been given is Jesus Christ. So the story starts, the best place for us to start, with a guy named David. You've all heard of David, David and Goliath. This is his famous incident, which is a story that still captivates people today. You know, Malcolm Gladwell came out with a whole book about David and Goliath just a couple of years ago. Interestingly, he underwent his own personal Christian conversion process in the, in the process of writing that book, but that's a story for another time. The story for tonight is David, and uh, he, he fights Goliath. Everybody knows that. What people don't remember is why that's significant, because Goliath wasn't just any giant. Goliath was the captain of the Philistines, and the Philistines were the nation that had been bullying and oppressing 
David's people, who are also God's people, the Israelites. And so David, in defeating Goliath, it's not this one-off event. It's just a sign of things to come. Because from there, as he grows up, he becomes this increasingly powerful general. And he leads the people in this series of successful battles against the Philistines, and then after that, against the other neighboring nations. He does it by uniting the tribes. These 12 tribes that had previously been independent, he brings them all together and unites them. And under his leadership, they defeat all their enemies. He sets up a capital city in Jerusalem, and they all want to make him king. So it's very similar to, if you want to think about like George Washington. You're uniting the disparate colonies, fighting the oppressing power, and then they make him the, the head of state. And for David's entire lifetime, for you know, he reigns for 40 years, everything's great, is the golden age of Israel. But once he dies, then everything falls apart. Even when, uh, when Washington stepped down, you know, a united country goes to a divided country overnight. All of a sudden, Adams and Jefferson are now the heads of these two parties, and the two-party system is born. And, and that's how it was with David, except a lot worse uh, it, it's, first, it's infighting and power struggle, and then it's just outright civil war. And, of course, the, the neighboring countries, you know, they know how to take advantage of this state of affairs. And so uh, over time, over the centuries, Israel, both parts of Israel, start losing a lot more battles than they're winning. And it culminates in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians come in. They not only destroy Jerusalem, they not only destroy the temple, but they pack up the entire population and deport them, bring them over to Babylon to, to have to live in this foreign land, taking them away from their home. That's kind of the first segment, or the first episode of the story. And this is where the prophets come in. You're going to want to pay attention to these guys because we're going to be talking about them a lot tonight. And the prophets, who the prophets were, is we're talking about the great prophets of the Old Testament now, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, who these guys were is they were God's spokesmen in this time of national collapse. Because the, the question everyone was asking is, well, why did God let this happen? Has God abandoned us? And what the prophets say is, no, he hasn't abandoned you. He, in fact, he has a plan for you. He has a gift for you. He's going to give you a gift. Not now, but someday, and this is where the scripture reading for tonight, the passage you heard read, at the beginning comes in. Someday a son is going to be given. In other words, a new king, a new David. He's going to be from David's line. He's going to be from David's royal family. He's going to sit on David's throne. But uh, if you thought David was great, just wait, because he's not only going to be the son of David, he's also going to be the son of God. He's going to be a human figure and a divine figure at the same time. And so, you know, David died, and that's where everything fell apart. Well, this new David is never going to die. He's going to rule and reign on David's throne forever and ever. This is the, the Messiah. You've heard of this before. And these, these messianic prophecies are very prominent in the Old Testament. In fact, we were talking about loose ends a minute ago. This is the loose end in the Old Testament. The first three quarters of the Bible is this promised Messiah, this promised king that's going to come in the line of David. So then the question is, okay, well, when? When is this gift going to be given to us? Isaiah doesn't answer that question, but one of the other prophets, Daniel, does. And what happens with Daniel is an angel named Gabriel comes to him. Remember that name because he's going to come back in in just a second. An angel named Gabriel comes to him and says, this son is going to be given 
uh, in, in a 70 times 7 years, a week of years times 7 years, so roughly you know, 490 years, roughly 500 years is when it's going to happen. So Daniel is roughly 500 B.C., and uh, the, the prophecy that everybody had read was that around 500 years after Daniel, this son was going to be born, which is why around A.D. 0, they didn't call it A.D. 0, obviously, because they didn't know, like we do looking back, that it's the turning point of history. Uh, but our A.D. 0, 500 years after Daniel, that's why messianic expectation is at a fever pitch in Israel, because the 500 years were up. And it wasn't just the 500 years Along with this, this message of 500 years that Daniel had received, he also received a dream. And in the dream, uh, there's four beasts coming out of the sea. Uh, first a lion, and then a bear, and then a leopard, and then a beast with horns. And each one comes after the other one, and each one takes power from the other one. And God tells them these four beasts are the four great kingdoms of the earth. But then after the four beasts, after the, the fourth beast comes and takes power, Daniel sees in his dream... It says, quote, he sees someone like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven from the throne of God. In other words, a human figure like a son of man, but a divine figure coming from the throne of God. And this figure, this person, comes and defeats the fourth power, this fourth beast that had taken over, sets up his kingdom to reign forever and ever, Daniel says, just like Isaiah. The part that Daniel adds is this line about it's not just for Israel. He has this line in Daniel 7 where it prophesies that this is going to be the king for all people, that all people from every country will worship him in every language. So the the four beasts, the four kingdoms, since the Babylonian exile and since Israel had been taken over by Babylon, first it had been Babylon, it's just been one, one oppressor after another. First Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. Four. Rome is the fourth of four. Rome is in power around A.D. 0. So they line up. The four kingdoms have come to pass, just as the prophecy said. It's 500 years, just like the prophecy said. And everyone's saying, it's now, it's now, it's now. It's got to be now. And around that time, the angel Gabriel, same angel that had come to Daniel, comes to a woman named Mary living in Nazareth. And he says to her, it is now, and it's you. You're the one. You're the one that's going to give birth to this child. You're the one through whom this son is going to come. You know, that's the whole son of man part. He's going to be born just like any other baby. And she says, how can this be? From a virgin. And the angel says, well, that's the whole son of God part. You know, that's both parts of the prophecy. So the child is born uh, by this strange series of events. Mary, who lived in Nazareth, outside of her own control, ends up on the night the baby's born in this town called Bethlehem, the city of David, city where David's from. Oh, by the way, we should also mention that Mary happened to be a direct descendant of David. And this child grows up. He's clearly human. He's clearly normal. But then what becomes clear over time is that he also is clearly divine. So he, he does these miracles, the likes of which no one has ever seen before. He preaches these sermons the likes of which no one has ever heard before. He speaks with authority about God like he knows him. You know, he calls him Father. 
And so there's this growing sense of expectation about this guy, about Jesus. You know, there are these murmurings in the gospel of, is he the one? Is he the guy? Is he the promised king? Is this the one that we've been waiting for? The timing's right. Is he the one? And by the time he's 33 or so, that, that open question has now, consensus has coalesced around an answer. It's him. It's got to be him. And his following just keeps growing and growing. And now the only question is not, is he the guy? Now the only question is, when is he going to do it? When is he going to make his move like David did? When is he going to go and and initiate the rebellion? When is he going to go and overthrow Rome? It's going to happen any day now. We know it because this is him. Disciples even ask him point blank at one point in the Gospels to say, is it, is it the time? Jesus, is now the time? Is now the time when you're going to reestablish David's kingdom? Is now the time? And finally, the day comes. So Jesus uh, rides into Jerusalem, this triumphant military procession, and the crowds are going absolutely crazy. You know, everybody knows this is the day. It's finally happened. He's finally going to do it. And the next day, after this triumphal entry, he lets himself be arrested, and then shortly thereafter, he's unceremoniously executed by the Romans, the very imperial power that he was supposed to overthrow. And if that's not a disappointment, I don't know what is. You know, everybody knew it was going to happen. Everybody saw it coming. Everybody knew it's now. And then it just doesn't. It just doesn't happen, and it changes in an instant. You know, the, um, the football postseason is now upon us. And if you think back to, to last postseason and last Super Bowl, you know, the, the Seahawks are down by four points, and there's enough time left on the clock. And they start driving, and then they have this miraculous catch, truly miraculous catch, like one of the greatest catches in the history of football. And every Seahawks fan, everybody in the whole stadium, every Patriots fan for that matter, Tom Brady, they all know it's going to happen. It's over. It's just a matter of time. They drive, they drive, they drive, they get down to the one-yard line interception and you know if you're a Seahawks fan you go from in an instant from this this massive sense of expectation to the deepest possible disappointment and even bewilderment and confusion and and that's how it was with Jesus being crucified by Rome except you know times a thousand because unlike a football game this actually matters you know people's lives were hanging in the balance and they had all known it was going to happen, and then it didn't. It just switched in an instant. And we obviously don't have public opinion polls from the time, but if you had to guess, you would say something like, I don't know, 80% of people, probably the day he comes into Jerusalem, think he's the guy, he's the new David, he's going to do it. And then a few days later, that goes to right around 0%, because he flat out didn't do it, and now he's dead, so it's over. And the conclusion that they all drew was, well, he was another one of those guys. Because uh, with, with everything we were talking about earlier, the 500 years and the four kingdoms and these prophecies lining up and this massive sense of expectation, what that had created was a Messiah vacuum. And so there were all of these pretend messiahs, all these wannabe messiahs who around that time, we've got this from various historical sources, not just the Bible, who were, were saying, I'm him, I'm the guy, I'm the new David. And they would get a falling for a little while, and then their life would in the same way Jesus did. They would be executed by Rome. And so when, when this happened to Jesus, everybody said, well, 
We thought it was real this time. We thought it was different this time. We thought he really was the real guy, born in Bethlehem from the line of David, all these miracles. But clearly he was just another one of those. What else can we conclude? The greatest disappointment of all time. The greatest, most disappointing gift that God has ever given. And you say, well, okay, so if that's uh, how his life ended, then, then why do we know his name today? You know, why, do three, why does three quarters of the world know his name today? Why does he split history into B.C. and A.D.? You know, we don't know the names of any of those other failed messiahs, so if he was just another failed messiah like all those other guys, then, then why have we even heard about him? And, and that's an interesting story in itself, because what happens is there's a there's a small group, really small group of his followers that after his death, after everybody else has given up on him, uh, they're basically like conspiracy theorists, and they make two claims. The first claim is, well, after the Romans killed him, um, he rose from the dead. He, he came back to life a few days later. And uh, the reason you can't verify that is because right after that, then he went to heaven, and so he's, he's gone now. But he's going to come back again someday, and when he comes back the second time, that's when he's going to do all that stuff that the prophecies said he should do, you know, about David's throne and kind of conquering all the oppressors. It's all going to happen the second time. And, you know, if, if you're living in that day, the only response you can have to this is just to shake your head in pity for the person who's saying this because it's just sad that you would be that attached to it that you can't give up on it after it's clearly over you know we they would say well we all thought it was him and we're all disappointed but that doesn't change the fact that what happened happened you can't just pretend like it didn't happen and make up some story about oh well no he's going to come back in the second time around and this would be like uh, a Seahawks fan saying, well, you know, I've heard that tomorrow night there's going to be another Super Bowl. And in that Super Bowl, we're going to win. You know, this wasn't the real one. That's the real one. It's just, it's just delusional. But what's fascinating is that of the two claims, that one wasn't even the most outlandish. That one looks tame by comparison to the second claim that they make. Because at least that first claim even though it defies uh, natural law, you know, it's a miracle, somebody coming back from the dead, at least we, we can understand it conceptually. Like, we know what that means. The second claim doesn't even have that going for it. Because their second claim is, well, yeah, he's going to come back someday. And, and that's great. And we're excited about that. We're looking forward to that. But really, when he comes back, that's just sort of like a, an exclamation point on the victory he's already achieved. Because really, really, he already did it. Even up to this point, just the life he lived and the death he died so far, he already did it. He already fulfilled all the messianic prophecies. He already proved that he was this king, this, this gift from God. And again, this one's just sort of like nonsense. You know, what are you, what are you even talking about? You know, the, the promise was that this king would come and overthrow the imperial power. The imperial power is still there. The guy you're talking about is dead. What planet are you living on? It just doesn't even make sense. This one is more like the Seahawks fan saying, oh, no, we won. We won the game. You know, the, the scoreboard may say that they had more points, but, but really, we won. And it's just nonsense. You, know, you don't even know how to engage with it because it, it, you don't even know where the person's coming from. 
So those are the two claims. And, you know, you would think that it, it would just disappear. It doesn't. And the reason it doesn't disappear is because, specifically with regard to that second claim, this claim that he already did it, that he already was the Messiah, that he already fulfilled all the prophecies, what happens is, what nobody could have expected, is a couple of the best and brightest minds in Israel become obsessed with this. Uh, you know, they're, they're like these rogue, renegade scholars, revisionists, historians. And at first it's just working class people, poor people, uneducated people who are in this very small group of conspiracy theorists. But then some of these top-notch scholars become intrigued with this thesis about he really was the Messiah after all, even though he got executed. And they say, well, let's, let's play around with this, you know, this theory. What, what can we do with this? What can we say about it? Where does it take us? And so what they do is they say, all right, let's, let's throw out every assumption. Let's wipe the slate clean. Let's get rid of all of our preconceived conventional ideas about our history. And let's go back and relook at our history with one question, which is this. What has our real problem been all along? What's our real problem been all along? Because what we thought was always our problem was them. We've always thought the problem was them. The enemy outside the gates, these oppressive powers, these people that are ruining our lives, ruining our national life, and ruining in our individual lives because they are messing things up from the outside. And we thought the reason that David was so great and David was the savior was because he dealt with that problem. But what if we reevaluate it and read it again from the beginning? And what they found when they did that is that there was another strain that was there in the history. There was another strain that was there in the prophets. It was lower, it was deeper, it was more hidden, but it was just as there. And what this other strain was, was the prophets not talking just about being delivered from from these enemy nations on the outside, but the prophets saying something else as God's spokesman. And what they said on behalf of God was, you know, you really, this whole thing, although this, this problem, this situation you got yourself into, you really brought it upon yourself. You're looking at everybody around you. You're looking at all these other countries and blaming them. God says, really, it was you. Really, I let this happen to you because of your sin, because of your rebellion, because you had turned your back on me, because of your selfishness, because of the way that you put your own needs and your own desires and your own wants above everything and anything else. You stepped on anybody else to get ahead. God says, that is your real problem. And this other stuff about the the other countries coming in and taking over, it's kind of a, a side issue. Now, if you reevaluate what the problem is, then you have to reevaluate what the solution is. And it makes you look at David, the great savior, in a very different light. Because if that was the real problem, then what is David's real strength? What does David really do for the people? It's not that he defeats all these enemies on the outside. What David really does, when you go back and look at the life of David, you see this. What David really does is he confronts the people about their sin. He talks to the people about their sin, and he says, look, we've turned our back on God. We've got to turn back toward him. Look at what we're doing. Look at how we're living. We have to turn this around, and he does. David is a warrior, but more than that, he's a worshiper, and he leads the people in worship. He leads the people in repentance. He leads the people back to God by addressing and dealing with their sin. So then these scholars, these scholars that are mulling this over and rereading history, 
then they start to ask this question, which is, well, if that's where David's real strength was, if that's what made him such a great king and such a great savior, then what does it really mean to be a king in the line of David and in the mold of David? What, what would this king really do? If our problem is really our sin, then this Messiah, this, this chosen son, what he really needs to do is to deal with our sin in some final, ultimate way. But we don't even know what that would look like. And, and when they go back to the prophets with that lens, when they go back to the prophets with that question in mind and start searching through the prophets again, they are absolutely knocked off their feet by what they find. Because there in the prophets were these obscure passages that nobody had remembered. Nobody even knew they were there. But all of a sudden, they jumped off the page with this new lens. So let me, let me read you one of them. You have to kind of see this to believe it. It's from the book of Isaiah. Same exact book we read from at the beginning of the service. These prophecies about a king's going to come that's going to rule and reign. That's in Isaiah chapter 9. If you flip forward to Isaiah chapter 53, he says this about the same king, about the exact same guy, this Messiah. He, he then goes on to say this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then look at this part. But though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. Therefore, he shall have a portion among the great, and he shall divide the spoils of the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. And for hundreds of years, nobody has any idea what this could possibly mean. And so they just ignore it. They just completely ignore it because it makes no sense, because it doesn't fit at all with all of these other prophecies about this same guy, about him coming to rule and reign and take over. And then the deeper reason they ignored it is because if you really stop to think about it, this part is insulting. This idea that this king has to come and die for your sin, this idea that your sin is that bad, that odious to God, that somebody, some perfect sacrifice has to come and die for you on your behalf to atone for it, that's really insulting. And so everybody just ignored it. Until these scholars in the first century who look at Jesus and look at these prophecies and they, the penny drops, you know, they realize that Jesus really was God's Messiah and the most powerful movement in the history of the world is born. And see, that's the thing, is that the other strain of prophecies, the more prominent part, the part about him taking over and ruling and reigning, those all come to pass too. It just takes time. You know, go back to Daniel. What's Daniel's prophecy? That this king is going to come and take over, conquer the fourth imperial power which is Rome, which just gets executed by Rome. So that doesn't happen, right? Well, it, it does happen if you just wait long enough. Because within a couple of centuries, Christianity has completely taken over the Roman Empire, and it does it without firing a shot. 
He does it without drawing a sword, which was the part of Isaiah 9 that nobody ever understood before. It talks about this militant king coming in and breaking the rod of the oppressor, throwing off these people, these enemies on the outside. But then there's this line about well, every, every warrior's boot that's used in battle will be thrown into the fire. In other words, he's going to do it all without bloodshed. And the thinking was, well, how is that going to happen? Because that's not how David did it. David was only able to accomplish this through the sword. But we see what it looks like. We see what it looks like for the new David to conquer without any violence in these first centuries of the church. Of course, we've, we've seen it happen in the 2,000 years since. You know, Daniel's other prophecy, not only about conquering Rome, but the other prophecy, remember, was about how he's not going to just be the king of Israel, how people from every nation are going to worship him in every language. And, you know, there's, there's probably no better vantage point to assess that one from than where we're sitting and where we're standing tonight. Because here we are 2,000 years later, and most of the world is about to shut down for several days in honor of and celebration of this guy's birth, and yes, in worship of him. You know, all around the world, right now, as we speak, on every continent, in every country, in every language, there are people singing to him. Not singing about him, people singing to him, just as we are here tonight. And so then the question is, well, what really is going on here? You know, if you go back to the weeks after his death, there were two theories about what had happened. And it was pretty clear which one was more plausible. The the first theory was, well, you know, he he really was the son of God, and he rose from the dead, and he's going to come back again someday. And he actually really accomplished everything already anyway. That one could be rejected out of hand. And so the, the second obvious explanation was, well, he was just another one of these many in a long line of failed revolutionaries. But now, 2,000 years later, what used to be the obvious explanation is now the theory that completely lacks plausibility. Because if that's who he was, then how did we get here? Then how did this happen? Then how did he split history between B.C. and A.D.? So that's the, that's the backstory of Christmas. That's the prequel. And I want to close just by saying, being very direct and, and saying that it's not just a story, that Jesus is not just uh, God's Christmas gift to Israel 2,000 years ago. He, he's still Jesus' God's Christmas gift to you tonight. But the, the thing that hasn't changed is he's still just as insulting and just as disappointing as he's ever been. See, everybody wants a God that's going to take care of their enemies, a God that's going to solve the problems all around them because, because this is going wrong and that's going wrong. And I need a God to come in like a conquering hero and take care of all that mess, all my circumstances. That's what I need. That's, that's the Messiah that you asked for, the Messiah that's on your Christmas list. And God's message to you at Christmas is what you thought was your problem is not your problem. Your problem is not your circumstances. Your problem is not this bad thing that happened. Your problem is not whatever suffering you've had to go through. Your problem is not this relationship or this lack of a relationship. 
Your problem is not your spouse. Your problem is not your boss. Your problem is not your kids. Your problem is not your parents. Your problem is you. You are your problem. Because you are the one that's living your life, and you're the one that's so selfish. You're the one that's so afraid. You're the one that's so insecure. You're the one that's so broken and messed up. You're the one that's so totally out of control. Your problem is that you're a sinner. Your problem is sin. It's the same problem that everybody's ever had from the beginning of time, from the Garden of Eden up until now. That's your problem. And so the the Savior you need, the Messiah you need, is not somebody who comes in like a general and conquers enemies around you. The Messiah you need is somebody who comes and deals with your sin, who points out your sin, who dies for your sin, who cleanses you of your sin. And by doing that, then enables you to finally be free and finally be forgiven. And, and that's what is being offered to you. And if you can get over the offensiveness of it, if you can get over the disappointingness of it and how insulting it is, then you'll come to see that it's the greatest gift of all. Let's pray. God, you were not what we expected. We had an idea for how we wanted things to go. We had an idea for uh, what was wrong with our lives and how just a little fix here if we just put this patch on here and got rid of this person over here and made this move there that uh, you could fix it. We just need a little help from you to turn things around. And we see now that you don't offer us that. But instead, you come and offer instead to change us from the inside out while leaving our circumstances more or less untouched. We're not sure what we think of that. We're not sure how we feel about it. We're not sure we can believe it. And so tonight, I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would make it real to us that you would speak directly to us through your spirit, just like you spoke to your people through the prophets of old, that you would show us where our real problem lies and show us the beauty of this disappointing, insulting gift that's being offered. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.